Now, you and I are going to die because, you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years, in one of two places. Morning, everybody. I want to personally add my heartfelt gratitude to Pastor Hudson and to all of the youth leaders that have served uh, throughout the years. You guys have to remember that it was just about six years ago that we had a total of four students in student ministry, and half of them were mine. <laughs> so just to see what God has done over the last few years has been so humbling, and again, super appreciative of all those that, that have served. So uh, this morning, we're gonna jump right into it, if it's cool with you guys, a lot of ground to cover. We're gonna end our series on heaven and hell next week, and then the week after that, the first Sunday in August, we're going to start a new series, and we're gonna be in the greatest letter ever written. The greatest letter ever written. It's in your Bibles, known as the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, Romans. This was the letter that influenced John Calvin and Martin Luther to understand better the completeness, the wholeness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's two weeks from today. This morning, we're going to talk about a power, person, entity that is hell-bent, if you will, on keeping people out of heaven. You may remember from history class that as Hitler rolled across Europe, at times he was met with very little resistance. In fact, in the underdeveloped countries, there are literally, there are pictures of people picking up rocks and throwing them at tanks, totally underprepared for the battle. Couldn't even be called a battle, they were so unprepared. So it is, in my opinion, for many Christians. They are unaware of the battle that surrounds them. Unaware of these forces that want to prevent people from entering into God's kingdom. C.S. Lewis said in a very poetic way. He said that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Not a steep descent, but a gradual one. And it is soft underfoot. The safest road to hell is the gradual one that often feels very comfortable. If the Bible is true, there are unseen events and things happening that are shaping even nations. One of my mentors used to say, perhaps in all of the Bible, the most misbelieved verse is found in Ephesians chapter six, and it says this. Our struggle, our wrestle, is not actually against flesh and blood, but the struggle is against the, now notice the words, because words are important. There's a description being giving, given to you. Our struggle is actually against rulers, and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now, he's writing in the first century AD, and I think in many ways, many people would describe 
the earth as we live in it now as being somewhat of a darkened place, against the spiritual forces of evil in these heavenly realms. And these forces have been at work since the beginning of creation, perhaps even before. Just a casual reading of the Bible from front to back, you see this in the very opening chapters of the Bible. There's this creature that appears. Later we find out that it is this entity known as Satan. Very crafty, in fact, the Bible uses the word schemata, from which we get our English word scheme. The root of that word actually describes a set of blueprints, coordinated plans to build something. Very thought through. He's a schemer. You see this from the very beginning. He appears in the Garden of Eden as a snake, which is an animal. Here's how it's crafty. God creates Adam and places Adam under his authority. Adam is under the authority of God. Then God creates the animals and places the animals under the authority of Adam. And so here comes this creature. And immediately Adam is thinking that he has authority over this being. And then a conversation ensues. And this is where it gets really crafty. Because the serpent ends up questioning God. But in, in, in just a really, in a real kind of nefarious way. He says, did God really say, and then he takes God out of context. He misquotes God. And you're going to see how significant that is as we move through these texts this morning. This has always been Satan's game to take the truth, to twist it, and then people get very, very confused. He's very good at it, been doing this for a very long time. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we see the king of Syria waging war against the Israelites. And there's this guy named Elisha. He's a prophet from God. God speaks to Elisha and says, go forewarn the Israelites and tell them that the king of Syria is, pre is preparing for battle. And so Elisha tells them, and to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so he's, he's sharing this message. The Israelites are then prepared for the attack and they defend it. Meanwhile, the king of Syria is out of his mind. He's like, how did this happen? And he learns that God's been speaking through this man and he decides, I gotta kill this guy. I gotta take him out. So he sends his army to surround the city of Dothan where Elisha is, and Elisha's servant goes out to do his thing outside the city, and all of a sudden he has this radical experience, 2 Kings chapter 6. Now when the attendant of the man of God, that would be Elisha, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And so the servant says to Elisha, alas, my master, what shall we do? We're surrounded. This is going to be very bad for us. So Elisha answered, it's okay, calm down, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's like, what are you talking about? It's just you and me right now against this army? Then Elisha prayed and he said, oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes so that he may see what is this spiritual reality that is unseen? Give them these spiritual lenses to see what's really happening. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was filled with horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha, and Elisha prepares the Israelites, and they defeat the Syrians once again. Daniel was this prophet who prays for 21 days. He gets not one response from God. You ever pray, and you're like, God, are you there? <laughs> A week goes by, two, three, and he's like, could, could I get something, some, some, some kind of response? And then after 21 days, Daniel gets a tap on the shoulder and it terrifies him because it's not an earthly being that gives him this tap. Chapter 10, behold, a hand touched me, he says, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, you are a man who is greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand up for now. Now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. So Daniel prays, gets no response. Three weeks later, this angel shows up and says, now is the time for me to be sent to you. But don't you for a second think that God wasn't listening to you, that your prayers weren't heard. Your prayers were heard, then why didn't I get an immediate response? Well, he's about to explain. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Drop down to verse 20, the angel says, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece is gonna follow. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. This is an interesting book. In it, there is none who contends by my side, it says, except these, against these, except Michael, which is your prince, Daniel. So Daniel prays for three weeks, gets no answer, gets a tap on the shoulder. This angel shows up and says, from the moment you spoke, God heard you. But you didn't get an answer because I was waging war. <laughs> and I was, now this is where things get really interesting. I was waging, this is why I began by reading the text. Authorities, principalities, powers. That describes hierarchy, organization. Here we get details. There are princes that are assigned, it appears, to specific locations on the planet. And what's really interesting is this one mentioned here is the Prince of Persia. Now, think this through. The, the Persian Gulf, Iran, Iraq, that's modern-day Iran and Iraq. The Garden of Eden was in modern-day Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. You know what's interesting about this area, area of Persia? There has not been lasting peace since when? Never. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Of all the places in the world, what, you know, you, you think, where is, there been, where is such hostility always happening in the world constantly? Well, the Middle East. Maybe that's because it's a specific location with the kind of authority and power that is dedicated to its disruption. So at the very least, well, and, and then he says, hey, I'm, I was detained, I was waging war. Then Michael comes on the scene, he flexes, I get some relief, but I gotta go back. And then there's another prince coming that's assigned to a different location. It would appear that 
these powers, these dark powers and influences have a direct influence upon nations. But when we say nations, really, what are we talking about? Governments. We're talking about governments. Highly organized, very sophisticated. They got a schemata, they got a blueprint. That's the Greek word schemata, from which is our English word scheme, it's a blueprint. And there are these spiritual realities that the text tells us about that I fear that many Christians are completely oblivious to. And if your enemy doesn't exist in your mind, then you have already lost. So here's the question. Where did all this begin? You know, where did all this like sense of darkness and this power and this authority and this hierarchy, where did it begin? Like, like who would be like the master general, right, in charge? Well, it's interesting because the prophet Isaiah tells us about the downfall of a very specific creature. It says this in Isaiah chapter 14. It says, how you are fallen from heaven. Well, who, who is this? Well, then you get this, this descriptions. Oh, day star, son of dawn. Now, these are two descriptions of beauty. So in some way, this creature was, had some beauty to it. How you are cut down to the ground, from heaven to the ground. You who laid the, notice this, nations low. There's the influence. You said in your heart, see, this was the problem. It was an issue of the heart. What was inside eventually came out. Now, as I read this, I want you to understand, I'm gonna emphasize some phrases. See if you can catch them. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Did you catch it? There's a reason why pride is called the original sin. It's a little bit gnarlier than what you realized. Because this creature, this beautiful creature, apparently was undone by its own beauty. Before I had kids long ago, I heard a pastor say, this was my prayer for my children. God, do not make them too beautiful. Do not make them too intelligent. Do not make them too rich or too powerful. See, the reality is the more gifted you are, the more capable you are, the more beauty you have, the more power, fame, and influence, the more you become your own worst enemy. There's a solution for that, and I'll explain it in a moment. So this appears to be in the heart of this, this entity later. If you read through the Bible, we know that this actually is Satan. In the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as that ancient serpent of old. It's amazing how congruent the Bible is from beginning to end when you let it speak for itself. And so since Satan was cast to the earth, here's the thing. The earth has been his playground ever since. And Jesus had a full, full, full awareness of this. He acknowledges it actually three times in John chapter 12. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world and now will the ruler of this world 
be cast out. John chapter 14, I will no longer talk much with you, he says, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. He has claim on others, but he has none on me. John 16, the ruler of this world is already judged. Satan is an already defeated foe. Jesus is baptized. And then after he is baptized, he's led into the wilderness by the spirit. And while he's out there, Satan personally attacks him. How so? Takes him up to a high place. And what Satan says is very, very interesting. He says to Jesus, and I think, why, why is this happening? I think in part because Satan is not omnipotent and all-knowing. He does not all-powerful. He doesn't know everything. But he can, he's been around a long time, and he is good at the game. He can predict with great certainty what you will do if he puts you in any particular situation. He knows you better than you know yourself. You, faced with a particular temptation, he can very accurately predict exactly what you're gonna do, okay? So he's wondering, is this Jesus of Nazareth the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? <laughs> is like he really the son of God? Is he the Messiah? Let's put it to the test. Because if he's a man, fully man, and no God, he'll fall for the temptation, as men do. So he takes Jesus up to this high place, and here's what he says. He says, do you see these cities? Look at their splendor. Look at their grandeur. And then you know what he says? They're mine. They belong to me. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong, they belong to me. He doesn't say that. He's like, okay, I'll give you that. Jesus even admits, ruler of this earth, only for a while, okay? Read the rest of the story, okay? Only for a while. Jesus says, you already judged, but yeah, I'll give you that. This is your playground. That's why the world is so jacked up, but it gets worse than you know, okay? Hang on for the ride. So Jesus says, no. And he quotes scripture. Because Satan is allergic to the truth, eventually he'll leave. And he does. Three times the temptation comes. Every time Jesus quotes the scripture and Satan's like, I'm out. Now he's worried, okay? What he thinks of Jesus might actually be true. Jesus responds by saying, I only bow down to the will of the Father. That's it, okay? So not doing that. But there's no arguing, arguing that Satan has a certain stranglehold, control. He rules this planet. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, things get intensely personal for these, um, these dark powers, if you will. And because it's there that the prophet Ezekiel is speaking against the king of Tyre. Now you say, well, what's the deal with this guy? Well, this guy, is, he was really arrogant and proud. And he demanded that he be treated like a god. And so he wanted to be worshiped. And so God's like, mm, no, kind of like with Satan, the created thing doesn't tell the creator how it goes, so I'm gonna bring you low. <laughs> I'm gonna bring you low. So he says, God says, Ezekiel, you're my guy. You're my mouthpiece. Bring a lamentation. In other words, you're gonna bring some difficult words against this dude for his pride and his arrogance. Verse 12, son of man, God says, Ezekiel, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and here's what you're supposed to say to him, and tell him it comes from me. Now, here's where things get really interesting, because the language shifts. I'm not gonna read the whole text to you, but in the beginning, it talks about how this man's heart is proud and arrogant, and it's all the familiar language that we would expect to read toward a human entity, but then all of a sudden, with one verse, whoosh, there's a massive shift, and here's what you find. There is a movement beyond the human entity to this dark spiritual entity behind the man. 
Listen to how the language changes. You were the signet of perfection. You, you had such wisdom and beauty. Perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Which Eden are we talking about? The garden of God. Now, was the king of Tyre in the garden of Eden? No, he didn't exist yet. See how the language changes? And there's something else being spoken to now. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. Crafted in gold were your settings. Stunning creature. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian. Here it is. Cherub. What is a cherub? An angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day I created you until the contents of your heart was discovered and what's inside spilled out when you said, I will, I will. I will, till unrighteousness was found in you. There is a dark entity behind the individual. And I would argue in this sense, with the specificity of the language, we're talking about the being that was in the garden of Eden originally, full of beauty, son of dawn, day star and in its own beauty became corrupted. After being cast out of heaven, he became this force of influence behind men and women who do incredibly nefarious things. Have you seen the movie Nefarious? Has anybody seen the movie Nefarious? I'm giving you guys some movie reviews right now. That's two weeks in a row. Go see Sound of Freedom if you haven't seen it, number one. Number two, rent the movie Nefarious. Parents, watch it first before you watch it with your kids. It's, it's interesting. I, I don't know who wrote the script, but there's some real good theology. Additionally, there is a pattern of uh, spiritual darkness that I have encountered and experienced in working with people that this movie just absolutely, it's just right on. I was, I was pleasantly surprised with uh, how well it was done. It's called Nefarious. You can rent it on Amazon. It's like six bucks or Apple. In that, uh, in that movie, it's difficult to determine what's happening within this individual who has committed these earthly atrocities. What, what is the driving force? And what's interesting and curious is that there is this gravitational pull that you often see in human beings toward what is dark. Why is that? Why not the gravitational pull naturally toward what is good? Watch the movie. So Jesus himself interacted with these spiritual forces 
and uh, of course with Satan uh, personally in the wilderness temptations. But no, notice this, let's not forget. This is the response, Matthew chapter eight. And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So you can't even visit the tombs of your loved ones because these guys are maniacs. They're driving people away in their demon possession. But notice this, Jesus comes and what do they do? They cry out, what have you to do with us? Now you better understand what comes next. Oh, son of God, do you understand what's happening? Demons have better theology than many preachers. There are guys who stand up behind the Bible and will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm like, are you? In James, James says, all you good God-fearing Jews, you pride yourself on your monotheism. That's the thing that sets you apart. In this polytheistic world of the Greeks and the Romans, you worship the one true God. And James is like, good for you. The demons also believe that God is monotheistic. Oh, they know that very well. Very, very well. Don't think that's the thing that puts you on good terms with God. It's not just what you know, it's the application of what you know. Demons have very good theology. They've got better theology than many preachers that are preaching in this moment in churches across America. You're gonna see how true this is. Um, it was Satan who entered into Judas, using him to betray Jesus. Now, I believe that the powers of darkness have saved their greatest attack. I do believe this. In all of human history, I believe they have saved their greatest attack for the church. And what is their point of attack? Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith there's a growing movement from young, the younger generation of Christians, many being raised in the church, to deconstruct their faith. What is, what is the genesis of that? What's going on there? Now, we should, we should be encouraging, obviously, our kids to be critical thinkers when it comes to their faith and not just spoon-feeding them. But listen to what it says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Now, would they do that intentionally? Like, would they follow these, intentional, these deceitful spirits intentionally? Or, or are they not fully aware of it? I would say they're not fully aware of it because look at the scheme. And look at this, teachings of demons. Are they sitting under the feet of demons and having this like demon party? No, this is sitting under the feet of false teachers who are demonically inspired. Satan uses bad theology to draw people away from God. That's why, as I've said many times, my primary responsibility to you and before God ultimately is to teach the scriptures as the author originally intended them to be taught. We wanna know what the author had to say because right doctrine produces right application. That's why theology actually is important. I was away a couple years ago and I was visiting a church and I was sitting under this guy's teaching and preaching and at one point he said, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a pastor. Dude, you need to be a theologian. 
You need to be a theologian. You need to understand what the scriptures say about the God who created humanity, sent his son to die for humanity. Now, theology is really important. So how do we engage? How do we win this war? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. It's not your typical weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're better because they have divine power to destroy, key word, strongholds. What's a stronghold? Mm, Let me describe it to you like this. You engage in something that you know is not healthy for you. It's a habit. It's become a habit. You engage in it and, and you're like, I'll never do that again. Tomorrow's a new day. I'm not going to do that again. And then within an hour, you do it. I'll put it Christianese. Sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. Am I touching any nerves? Sin, repent, sin, repent. That's a stronghold. That's a stronghold. How do you overcome that stronghold? Well, we have these weapons that are spiritual. What are they? I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, prayer. Jesus did it. Prophets did it. And what prayer does is prayer draws you closer to the heart of God, but prayer is also able to accomplish whatever God wants to accomplish. It's interesting. The disciples face some demons that are particularly gnarly, and they're like trying to cast them out, and they have no success, where they've had success before, and they're like, Jesus, what's the deal? Man, we're not doing much good. Can you kind of come in and provide some air cover for us? You know, can you, can you deal with this? And then what does Jesus say? He says, actually, these kind are so difficult that you have to fast and pray, and then they'll leave. It's like there's this one scene where these guys come, and in the name of Jesus, they're casting out demons and all this kind of thing, and they're kind of flexed, but they don't actually know Jesus. And so they come upon these, this group of demons, and the demons are like, who are you? And they strip them naked and humiliate them in front of everybody. It's like, just don't, don't even try it. Don't even mess, okay? So prayer engages God's power against the forces of darkness. Secondly, worship. When we worship, here's what's happening. We are doing the exact opposite of what Satan did because Satan was like, I will make my throne above the throne of God. So Satan says, My throne above God, what Christians do when they come and worship is they say, no, we come and we bow before God's throne. We don't try to elevate above God's throne. We we bow in respect before God's throne. And then thirdly, the Bible is described as this sword that cuts soul. What does that mean? It's like who you really are inside. If you really wanna know who you are, read the Bible and it'll tell you, and it'll tell you this. And this is what's crazy. There has to be a spiritual blindness that comes upon people, a darkness that's brought about that keeps people from seeing the light of the gospel, as Paul says, because the gospel is so good. Why would anybody wanna reject that? If you've you've not embraced it, let me just put it to you. Why would you reject it? Because here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. There are moments in life where you just feel like, oh, I, I am like, I'm the worst person. I just can't get anything right. Somebody says something to you and because your self-esteem is attached to what others think of you, you're wrecked, you're ruined, right? It takes like what, 10 compliments to overcome one criticism in your life and you're just wrecked. 
because you live your life at the mercy of what others think about you. So the gospel comes in your life and says, get rid of that. Here's what you need to know. First of all, in a lot of ways, you're not that lovable. <laughs> you're just not. In a lot of ways, you're not really as good as you think you are. But because you like to compare yourself to someone who's a little bit worse than you, you'll always be made to feel better about yourself. But you're really not that good inside. Be honest now. We put your thoughts on the big screen for 24 hours, everybody's gonna vomit, including mine. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dark stuff that goes on in the human heart. Just admit it, okay? That's the bad news. The good news, though, is that when you're feeling low, the gospel of Christ enters in your life and it lifts you up because it says, yeah, many times you're not super, super lovable and you, you are worse than you think, but you are far more valuable than you could ever imagine. Because rather than attach your self-worth to what someone says about you, even if it's your spouse, or Jesus died for you. And therefore, you have incredible value. When you're feeling low, the gospel brings you high. When you're feeling a little too high and too proud, the gospel brings you low. There is a spiritual blindness that comes over a person that causes them to say, not true. That is spiritual blindness, my friends. Don't let it be you. What we're talking about is truth. This is, this is true. This is the way things, this is why the world is in such a rough, rough shape. You've seen this movie, The Sound of Freedom, okay? You, you know that there is, there is a, evil is real. If evil is real, might there not be the counter to evil? And why does it exist? You listen to Joe Rogan interview Dr. Uh, um, the, creator, the intelligent designer, I forget his name. He asked the question, well, if God is real, why would he create humans that have a bent toward war? That's exactly right. Great question. You should be asking that question. Theologians call it theodicy. Well, because God wants to be in a relationship with you, so he has to give you the ability to choose to be in that relationship. Otherwise, you'd be a robot. There's no relationship with a robot. That's what makes your relationship so challenging. People choose to love you or they reject you. So God gives man free will, and with it, he rejects God, and God pursues. He says, well, now let me press in a little bit and prove to you how much I care. In your lost condition, I'm gonna rescue. In your darkness, I'm gonna bring some light. And so Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and that's love. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. That's the power of the gospel. So I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes because we've got some people that, see, one of the cool things about being a Christian is you get to declare publicly what team you are on. You know how so many things, so many things, so many things in this world try to, are lifted up to try to, try to divide humanity. There's only one thing that, that divides humanity. Everybody is on one of two teams. You are either on team God or team darkness. That's how the Bible defines everybody, man. It's not, it's not your economics, it's not your skin color, it's, it's, it isn't any of that stuff. All of humanity is divided into, divided into one of those two families. So let me put it to you this way. We've got some people that are gonna come and express their uh, identity with Christ, okay? What about you? Some of you have been coming for a while. You've been coming for a while. Maybe you've been coming through this whole series. And 
there's no movement. What I'm suggesting to you, what I'm just suggesting to you is this. Could there be something more that you're not aware of that is preventing you from stepping into that space? And if so, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Just a really simple prayer. Prayer is just communicating with God and it's just this, God, reveal it to me. Reveal it to me. Where there is dark, darkness, shine the light. So Father, as we hear from these individuals, just super thankful for their courage and just for their stories and the reminder that you really are in the business of changing lives, Lord. Pray a special blessing upon each one of them for our good, for your glory as in all things. It's because of what Jesus did. And it's in his name that we pray and God's people said, amen.